The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. African-American or Black Americans were actually less likely to be worried about contracting COVID-19. They were less likely to um, feel like they were prepared for crisis or a pandemic. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. For this episode of Annals on Call, we discuss a paper titled Awareness, Attitudes, and Actions Related to COVID-19 Among Adults with Chronic Conditions at the Onset of the U.S. Outbreak, a Cross-Sectional Study. It was published on the 9th of April, 2020, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Our guest to discuss this paper and other issues related to it is Dr. Tube Essien, who's a general internist and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and a health services researcher at the VA Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion. His research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities in the use of novel therapies in the management of cardiovascular diseases. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, Utibe, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this podcast. Uh, The problem of disparities is a huge problem in all of healthcare, and it seems to be uh, perhaps even magnified with uh, COVID-19, especially in terms of intensive care and death rates. There's a very interesting article in the Annals talking about the knowledge of underrepresented minorities, and I know you've been very interested in this and do a lot of work in this area. Maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about the article and postulate on uh, what some of the problems are and how we might address those. Certainly. So like you mentioned, really interesting article where our colleagues out in Northwestern University out in Chicago um, did a survey of about 600 individuals in that first week of uh, before the outbreak here in the U.S. So March 13th to March 20th, when we're still hoping conferences would, would happen and trying to figure out schools. And they surveyed um, individuals who were within four of the clinical trials based out in their institution and asked them about what their attitudes towards um, COVID-19 were, how aware were they about it, how worried were they about getting it themselves or others around them getting this infection, how are they changing their activities, um, and how likely, how much did they trust or that they were prepared to handle COVID-19. Um, and it was really striking to see some of the, the differences that they observed. So they really wanted to get at some of the um, health literacy factors that potentially could be driving some of those knowledge, attitudes, and awareness. And they noted that first, African-American or Black Americans were actually less likely to be worried about contracting COVID-19. They were less likely to um, feel like they were prepared for um, a, a crisis or a pandemic. 
They also found a similar finding in uh, individuals who are lower um, limited English proficiency or lower health literacy, rather, um, which were both quite striking differences. Again, these were early reports. And now, unfortunately, as you're mentioning, we're seeing about a month later from those interviews that um, the disparities both by race and by income have really borne out where mind African-American, Hispanic Americans are just far more likely to be hospitalized and die from this infection. It's disturbing that we're not doing a good job of educating all Americans equally. Uh, Having grown up in a very small town with a lot of uh, very uh, impoverished people, I know that the education in terms of socioeconomic status has always been a problem. What can we do to try to overcome that? What, what types of programs is your institution involved in uh, or that uh, you, I know you're in contact with people from all over the country. What do we need to do to help uh, raise awareness in especially the lower socioeconomic status, Blacks, uh, people who don't have English as a first language, but also other people who are of lower socioeconomic status? Right. I think that is what what many of us are trying to figure out right now. And that's from um, those of us who are clinicians on the front lines, either in primary care or in the hospitals, Um, individuals who are are public health officials or policymakers. All of us are trying to figure out how do we actually get the word out in a a clear and expressed, thoughtful way. I think conversations like these that we're having, just being clear and explicit about um, what the risks are as well as what the numbers are important. Um, I know many of my colleagues have written op-ed pieces in their local newspapers and have gotten on the the television and the radio to really share the word practically about COVID-19, express risk of hand, uh, and importance of hand washing, wearing a mask and um, social distancing. Uh, And I think those messages just need to continue to go out to our colleagues um, and to our communities in the best way that we can. Uh, A big part of our training in medicine is how to actually command and as a researcher is how to communicate the messages of public health. And I think we, um, even in the middle of the crisis, need to do our best to get out there and spread that message. Um, It appears, at least from this study, that unfortunately that message was missing um, populations and communities of color and um, lower socioeconomic status. And I think using voices from those communities, interacting and working with local social service organizations, faith-based organizations, et cetera, to make sure that the people who are trusted within those communities are helping to spread the word is also an important next step. I believe there's been work at at our institution in Birmingham, both with churches and with barbershops. Obviously, the barbershops are closed right now and people aren't going to church. If we're able to open things back up a little bit with careful social distancing, might uh, those types of people be better trusted sometimes then then people might trust me. Right. No, I think that that's a, a fair point as well right now. And I'm, I'm glad this is on a podcast because my hair is not benefiting from the fact that these barbershops are closed. But um, I think potentially our communities aren't as well in terms of spreading the word on this risk. Um, related to churches, I know there are a lot of faith organizations that are still holding services over Zoom and um, doing the best that they can to continue to spread the word out um, through those mo- um, modalities. And so I'm hopeful that as um, we in the healthcare system are getting the word out to those individuals that they can help um, serve as um, an additional resource to get the word out. I agree. Once things open up a bit, that'll be an important group to target. 
Another thing that I've seen written about and certainly personally have noticed over the years is uh, the disproportionate amount of uh, diabetes, hypertension. We live in the stroke belt down in Alabama, and uh, all the lower socioeconomic status population, but especially the black population, really is struck with a lot of obesity, diabetes, hypertension. How much is this playing into the disparities, and is the disparities in COVID mortality really disparities in cardiovascular risk factors, uh, and how do we put those two things together? I truly do believe that that, those are big drivers. Um, I think the clinical factors are what the early reports that have come out of China, Italy, uh, around the globe are showing that individuals with these chronic cardiovascular or cardiopulmonary diseases are more more likely not only to um, succumb to the infection, but also to have worse and adverse clinical reactions, end up in the ICU, and unfortunately end up dying. Um, so I, I think we have known for for decades now that unfortunately African Americans are more likely to have hold these chronic conditions. Um, I think even taking a step back, we need to think about access to healthcare as a potential driver of these chronic conditions that exist, and even a step before that, think about the structural factors, the neighborhoods individuals are living in, the history of discrimination and bias that, and legacy rather of those things that has put individuals in certain neighborhoods, in certain jobs, in certain um, income levels and education levels that really have been for years driving these data. Um, and unfortunately, we, many of us who are in, working in the health disparities field or even just care for our communities of, um, of color or lower socioeconomic status kind of saw these numbers coming. And unfortunately, they have borne out to be reality in our data right now. Another factor that I always worry about is even when a diagnosis is made, even when the patient and the physician really want to take care of the patient, so many of the medications are so expensive that if you're at sort of a, a maintenance uh, salary level, when you have to choose between food and medication, what are you going to do? And how, how do we develop programs to try to make sure that this vulnerable population gets the best possible medication care rather than second rate. Right. So that's um, an area of my research focus is thinking about access to novel therapeutics, especially in cardiovascular disease. Um, so certainly something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I think it's so critically important, A, to make sure everyone has access to health care. And I know there um, some reports right now are calling for the policies around expanding Medicaid as a potential way to address the vulnerable communities. Um, the most recent addition of the CARES Act is now making sure that uninsured individuals have access to um, COVID-19 treatment. So I think there are steps in that direction to make sure that those who are most vulnerable have access to the care that they need. In terms of thinking about medications, I think we need to continue to push the the, the pharmaceutical companies to lower the prices, especially of life-saving critical drugs. As you're mentioning, the many of the individuals in um, this, the annals paper that we're talking about were coming in with a number of chronic conditions and on as many as five medications, and that is going to add up once you're treating your diabetes, your hypertension, your pulmonary disease, and we're adding on a potential fourth, fifth, or sixth medication. Um, I think it goes not just to patients not trusting us and our recommendations as providers, but being able, like you said, to just be able to um, get that 
third, fourth, fifth medication while paying for food, while supplying for their family, paying the rent, figuring out how they're going to deal with the unemployment numbers that are just continuing to creep up right now. Um, It's really quite a challenge. One of the things that I worry about a lot currently, uh, it's really easy for me to be sheltered at home. I can do a lot of work from home. My wife can do uh, almost all of her work from home, but only about a third of the population really can do that. And almost none of the lower socioeconomic status jobs allow you to work from home. As we uh, try to figure out how to uh, open up the ability for people to work and to, uh, to do the things they normally do, uh, it seems like this is very, very important for our vulnerable populations to put them in a situation where they can actually provide for their family. And I worry about the unintended consequence of doing something that's very pure and trying to slow the pandemic. But what are we doing to those other people? Have you had any conversations about this? And, and how do we address it? Yeah, it's so complex. Just even the, the question, I think, is is challenging. I, I've been trying to go for a run once or twice a week, and the only um, people that I see on the road with me is the bus driver, um, who typically is riding an empty bus <laughs> that hour, and it typically is from a um, minority background. Um, I'm thinking about those who are delivering groceries right now, before those of us who do have the opportunity to shelter in place, or folks who are still riding the subways in New York City to be able to get to their essential jobs. And the data continue to show that those individuals are more likely to come from Black and Hispanic American, lower socioeconomic um, background. And I think the reality is that for years that's been going on. You know, we've kind of been maybe not as attuned to it because we didn't have a pandemic to think about it, but this is the reality for for many Americans. And I'm glad that the conversations are being had because I think it's a good opportunity for us to address the fact that there's still um, individuals who don't have a livable wage right now. There's still individuals who are working but not receiving insurance access through those um, jobs or those who did have jobs that they were getting insurance for and now, unfortunately, unemployed. Um, I think to address your other point around how do we make sure as we're starting to slowly open up the, the economy that we're keeping folks as safe as possible, we do need to make sure that testing is available to everyone. I know that one of the, the comments here in the piece, the analyst piece that we're talking about is that individuals didn't feel like they were worried or concerned about getting this disease. But also as time went on, I was anecdotally starting to hear that individuals were concerned about being refused testing and, um, again, tying back into the trust in the health system, wondering about whether that had to do with discrimination, what they look like, who who they were, versus the actual restrictions that many of our institutions were putting on testing. So if we don't have access to testing universally, we're not going to know who's infected. And I think we're unfortunately going to continue to put um, individuals at risk. You know, it seems like there are a number of people who are trying to figure out epidemiologically how much COVID-19 is out there. If any of those people are listening, I hope that they would specifically look at our vulnerable populations and do testing on the vulnerable population, compare that to the less vulnerable population, and to try to understand the disparities there and the inability to do social distancing in, in uh, some neighborhoods. You know, how, how do you do this if you don't have the right finances behind you. Unless we know those kinds of data, 
how can we address the issues? Uh, have you thought about that at all? Have, you, have, have any of your colleagues talked about that? Yeah, I think the biggest cry or cry call that many um, of our colleagues, both um, clinically and um, research, wise are making is that we need more data. We need to know where the individuals um, who have positive tests, who are infected, who are dying are coming from. Um, as of today, the, the most recent report from the Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention show that 33% of um, individuals hospitalized with COVID-19 were African-American compared to about 12.9% in the country. And that was loosely based off of 75% of missing data. So are we underrepresenting African-Americans? Are we overrepresenting? The data coming from individual states show that that actually may even be a lower number when we know that um, the early reports out of Louisiana show that 70% of deaths were from African-American groups. Similar reports are coming out of Detroit and Milwaukee and Chicago. So it really is a huge concern that we just don't have enough data. And I think where the the, the studies need to go, where the testing resources need to go, where the, the information around this disease need to go are the most vulnerable, the highest risk populations, whether they're high risk because of their clinical risk factors, or as you mentioned, because of their social risk factors, their inability to social distance, inability to hoard a month's supply of food and not have to go out to the grocery store every week to ensure that they have food for their families, and inability to stay at home and to work jobs that they're able to stay safely at home from. And so I think those are the populations that need to be tested, that we need to push our resources to. And like you said, I hope those who um, have the ability to make those decisions are listening. This has really been a great conversation, and I think the listeners really have learned a lot from you about how to think about this. In the last couple of minutes, talk to the uh, average resident, tending physician and academics, practicing physician who are listening to this, and what can we do? What, what do you recommend that we do in our own small way? Because if, ev if everybody's working together, then perhaps we can make progress if we're all on the same page. I totally agree. And I think I would hope that all my colleagues similarly join us in, in making this call for improving the access to um, race, ethnicity, and language-based data around this infection. You know, the more we know, the more we're going to be able to really um, target our resources. Being thoughtful about the risk of this disease beyond our traditional clinical risk factors that um, we've been really exposed to, thinking about those social risk factors, whether it's employment, income, education, um, or health literacy. And lastly, ensuring equitable treatment as best as we can. These are scary moments moments for our, our patients, and uh, many of them have to come into the hospital without having their typical advocate. So if we can take a few moments to sit with them and make sure they, they feel understood and heard around their um, condition, uh, I think we can address some of the inequities that are, are going on right now. Well, I certainly hope that this conversation helps the listeners be more aware, to think more about it, and to work with their colleagues uh, to try to do something as best we can. No problems are unsolvable. This is a difficult one because it's not a new problem. This is just the latest manifestation of an old problem. I see you shaking your head. Uh, I'll give you the last word on that. 
Yes, that's exactly right. And I think that's what many of us are saying. This is um, the disparities that we're seeing today, unfortunately, are um, as we expected. But we can do a much better job at addressing them in this moment. Uh, and I think that we'll be able to. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you and your family, uh, all your friends, uh, all your colleagues uh, stay healthy and safe. Thanks so much, Bob. You too. Take care. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Underrepresented minorities have a larger burden from COVID-19 than would be expected. This wide-ranging discussion looked at the multifactorial causes of uh, this disparity. One is a knowledge base, but there are other ones that are very similar to the disparities for cardiovascular disease, uh, obesity, diabetes, in general. We discussed what those are and discussed the complex problem of trying to address those disparities. We hope that all of you will take this into consideration and try to do your bit in decreasing uh, disparities. If you do decrease disparities for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, etc., you're also helping against COVID-19. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.